Hey, this is Mark A. Altman. And now you can enjoy all your favorite Electric Surge podcasts on the Electric Now channel. Download Zumo, Distro TV, Stir, and the Electric Now app, where you can enjoy great television and movies from Electric Entertainment, as well as all your favorite Electric Surge podcasts like The 430 Movie, Inglorious Trexperts, The Best Movies Never Made, The Rebel and the Rogue, a Star Wars podcast, and coming soon, Two on Who, a Doctor Who podcast. You must learn to listen to The Rebel and the Rogue, or you will not be allowed to come with me to Alderaan. If you're a fan of the 430 movie, you'll love Best Movies Never Made, hosted by myself, Josh Miller. And Steven Scarlatta. Where we explore some of the greatest movies never made, like E.T. 2. Johnny Quest. Beetlejuice Goes Hawaiian. And Halloween 3D. New episodes available every other Monday, wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, this is Mark A. Altman, and if you're a fan of the only gentleman secret agent with a license to kill and thrill, you should pick up my new James Bond oral history, Nobody Does It Better, available now in hardcover, audio, and digital, wherever books are sold. Do you expect me to read? No, I expect you to buy it. Hey, this is Mark A. Altman. And this is Darren Docterman, and we are the Inglorious Experts. Imagine yourself as one of the crew of this faster-than-light spaceship of the future, sharing their curiosity to know the unknown, their tension, their readiness for inconceivable adventures. Commander, if you sat down on this planet, I warn you that I cannot be answerable for the safety of your ship or your crew. When you reach the Forbidden Planet, you will meet Dr. Morbius, played by Walter Pigeon. The Doctor is sole owner of this fabulous world. Anne Francis is his alluring daughter, Alta, who has never seen a young man till she meets Commander Adams, played by talented Leslie Nielsen. You travel deep down into the heart of the Forbidden Planet to discover the incredible marvels of this lost genius race. Yet the wonders of the planet Altair IV conceal a strange and evil force, unknown, irresistible. And yes. welcome back. We have one of my favorite guests here with us today, Darren Docterman. Do you one know of mine too. I know. He's great. He not only uh, um, he not only is a longtime Star Trek fan, and he wrote the book. On Bill Shatner, on uh, Captain James C. Kirk. The Captain author. James C. Kirk, they're two different people, Mark. Not in my mind. <laughs> Kirk and also uh, Jean-Luc Picard. He uh, was um, the showrunner Family Guy. He uh, worked on uh, Enterprise for two exciting seasons. And, of course, is now um, on the Orville. So, uh, we're, and uh, we, we might as well ignore, and the president. The Writers Guild of America, most most exciting of all. The only good president of the United States. So, uh, Mr. David Goodman, we're thrilled to have you back. we got a great show to talk about. Welcome. It's I, I am, I'm here in my undisclosed location. I, uh, <laughs> I'm thrilled to be here, uh, having enjoying my coffee. Nice. Uh, bookshelf, and I'm trying to find uh, one of those many fine tomes about uh, Star Trek or James Bond or Battlestar Galactica. Uh, written. Well, uh, hold hold on just a minute. <laughs> I uh, 
we do want to report that yes, he is in fact wearing pants. Right there. There you go. There it is. Fifty-year mission. I think I'm in this book. You are in that book. In uh, a chapter in Enterprise. And I have to say, this has nothing to do with today's show. Uh, you know, during this lockdown, quarantine, self-isolating, I, I went back and watched a bunch of Enterprises, and uh, I, I, I'm, I have to say, I, I've enjoyed it a lot more than I did back in the day. Oh, look at you! <laughs> I haven't ordered the Bond book yet, but I'm going to. Oh, well, if we ever actually get out of our houses, I'll give you. <laughs> Uh, I can't wait. I want to read it. I'm very proud. I, mean, I, I, I think it came out great. And, you know, I'm a huge Bond fan and, and yeah, yeah. it was really fun to do. And, um, no, and Enterprise does, I mean, Enterprise, I feel like at the time, at the tail end of the Star Trek sequel prequel series, it didn't, it, it didn't seem as fresh and new because it, it wasn't. But now looking back, you watch the show and it's like, it's still Star Trek. And if you're not, you know, and it's, and you had some great writers on that show and, and you had the same great production team that did next gen and DS nine. And there's still plenty of great stuff in there. I, I don't know. I, I, when I had to write the Federation book, the history of the Federation and make, make, you know, those, the, the chapter that sort of covered the years of, of Enterprise, it was like, there was a lot of good work done there. Yeah, I think part of it was at the time, you know, there was so much Star Trek, and it was so in the same vein, and television was evolving and changing, and Star Trek didn't really evolve at all with the times. And I'm not talking about storytelling, but more, you know, the way it was shot, uh, the way it was produced. Uh, um, but... Um, so now it's almost like having all these new episodes because a lot of them I never saw of Voyager and Enterprise and going back and in particular some of those fourth season shows I'm really uh, having a ball watching you know uh, that the, the, yeah. have been enter entertaining yeah, it was produced with a lot of love I mean everybody uh, most of the people who are involved with that that fourth season that uh, you would love to show by then to uh, go back to Family Guy but um, the uh, you know Manny Cotto and then Mike Sussman they're all huge Star Trek fans and you can see it's it's really a love letter to the original series and i think that even though uh you know it's hit or miss as most star trek was when it was 22 to 26 episodes a season there's some really good episodes there and and your seasons as well in second and third season i mean i went back and watched carbon creek and a couple of uh you know a couple north star and a couple episodes and uh, you know i'm 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 enjoying it i think Sussman and manny were there third season with me it was fun we did you know, I did my Western episode. That <laughs> was Cowboy. I think of Good stuff in there. I know there'd been talk of, you know, you, you think, you know, you, when you get back, you're, like, you're getting a star and, and there had been talk of like, would they, you know, the network had thought, well, maybe we want to recap, you know, create a, have a new captain for season. And I have to say, I don't think it's the most dynamic Trek ensemble. And I think that might have been part of the problem as well. Um, there are some great, performances and individuals individually but right. the ensemble I, I don't think is that dynamic and i think that hurt the show a little bit too we when when last we had david goodman with us we wanted to share with you it was actually david's idea for the show and i think it was a great one to talk about the influence of forbidden planet on um, star trek we, we've glossed we've talked about it we've acknowledged it but we've never done a deep dive into it and um, I think it's, it's you know, especially if you've watched Forbidden Planet recently, you can really see the DNA of Star Trek in that, uh, 
in that movie. Tell us maybe Dave, if you could, um, you know, what, 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 what the significance of Forbidden Planet is. People don't realize this wasn't some B movie that came out in the fifties. This was a major expensive motion picture from MGM and uh, has become, you know, a legend of uh, science fiction cinema. Can you sort of set us up and then we'll, we can talk about how Star Trek plays into that. Well, I mean, it's an interesting story and, and I have here literally one of the best resources on That's Forbidden right. Planet. One issue of Cinefantastic. And if you're interested in this topic, this is the only source, as far as I can tell. Uh, it might be mentioned in chapters of books about MGM, but it, it, this, this is this deep dive into the production of it. I also have uh, this robot. Uh, oh, right. oh, look at that. Just about one jolt left. Oh, genuine ancient rocket bourbon. See here? Hey! Well, you low-living contraption, I ought to take a can opener to you. Quiet, please. I am analyzing. Yes, relatively simple alcohol molecules with traces of fusel oil. Would 60 gallons be sufficient? Gallons? Mister, I've been from here to there in this galaxy, and I just want you to know you're, you're the most understanding soul I ever met up with. Ow. Yeah. Um, anyway, but um, does it make beer? Oh. No, it does not. It wasn't. It was not beer that it was making. It was uh, whiskey. Whiskey. Oh, excuse me. I think uh, Tennessee uh, bourbon, actually. Tennessee bourbon. Yeah. Rocket bourbon. Rocket. Right. Genuine rocket bourbon. Whatever right. that is. Um, so it's important. I think reading. I was again sort of rereading this the magazine about it and. This movie was two guys who were special effects guys wanting to uh, come up with an idea for a real science fiction movie. And they pitched it to a producer, Nicholas Nafak. And then they hired a very talented screenwriter named um, Cyril Hume, who ended up sort of writing the screenplay. And it was going to be a low budget movie and it kept, it kept expanding. The budget kept expanding, which is, happens all the time in almost every science fiction thing that's ever been made. You've heard, Oh, we, we started small, like water world's a great example of that, right. which is like, you know, it was supposed to be like a, a $5 million movie ended up being the most expensive movie ever made. And, um, but the, the, the budget kept expanding because the people involved got really excited about this world that they were creating. And, uh, and but what's interesting to me about this movie is it was not a hit. It was, it was, it was considered a failure when it came out, right. but two re, clearly two big sci-fi guys saw this movie and robbed it, stole, just stole from it. Uh, one, Gene Roddenberry, the other, Erwin Allen. I'm just going to talk about Erwin Allen just for a second. Yeah. Because the, the way he he stole from Forbidden Planet, if you look at Lost in Space, the Jupiter 2, the design is stolen from the spaceship in Forbidden Planet. Right down the lights underneath, the way the legs come down and their steps, that's stolen from Forbidden Planet. The robot, the navigational console, the the sort of the monsters on alien planets are, you know, the whole, he stole so many design elements. Well, to be yeah. fair, he did hire the art director. <laughs> oh, so, I, didn't... I mean, Bob Kenoshta, who was the art, who was one of the art directors on Forbidden Planet and who designed Robbie, 
was an art director that he brought into on Lost in Space. And so naturally, one follows another. Well, except, those, I mean, unless, no, unless, unless, David, our, unless the art director- Those do that like, all the time. <laughs> unless the art director is, is, is Ir, says to Erwin Allen, have you ever seen Forbidden Planet? And Erwin Allen says, no. <laughs> and then, here, I got some designs for you. Right. Uh, I don't believe that. I think Erwin Allen saw it and said, yeah, do that. Absolutely, do that. absolutely. But do that. He, he, uh, he, wouldn't, he wouldn't put himself down in print saying that, of course. <laughs> no, that's right. <laughs> um, but what Ronberry did, which I think is really even more... Um, uh, uh, clever. Clever, morally, <laughs> ethically ambiguous, is, is the way he stole storytelling from right. Forbidden Planet. So... Uh, the the Navy ship on a spaceship. I don't think we'd ever really seen that. Um, uh, certainly not before Forbidden Planet. And so the sort of Navy sort of feel that this is a ship and there's a captain and and then he's friends with two guys and the crew, the doctor and the... Um, I, I, the audience has to watch Forbidden Planet. I mean, I, I, I don't... I, otherwise, everything I'm saying, it's probably boring anyway, but everything I'm saying is not going to have any meaning. If you haven't watched Forbidden Planet already, please do the, do so now. Press pause and Press go pause. do that, then come back. Because it's a it's a wonderful movie. I mean, the, 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 uh, the attention to detail and the, um, the uh, you know, the amount of, of effort that was put into the special effects still hold up. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but like, but the, the, the story... For the first two Star Trek pilots, The Cage and Where No Man Has Gone Before, clearly are inspired by Forbidden Planet. Absolutely. The idea yeah. of, of a of Structurally and thematically and yeah. And, and it, it's so amazing to me that that was okay. Like, like, I can't go, you know, I mean, I guess somebody might say something about Orville, but I, I didn't create Orville, so... <laughs> <laughs> But, uh, you know, it's it was like it <laughs> it was okay. Uh, it was just it was okay. Yeah, I'm just going to do this because I don't know that that many people had seen Forbidden Planet. There was no home video. Uh, if it had a re release, it was re-release. It was only released once, so he could do that. And he created something obviously that's lasted 50 plus years, but it was clearly, clearly so uh, so influenced by. And I think in some ways stolen by, you know, from uh, Forbidden Planet. The influences are so strong that when I watch Forbidden Planet, I really do feel like I'm watching a Star Trek episode. Right. Yeah. Certainly a, a proto-Star Trek. Yeah. As if, yeah, it was exactly, you know, Star Trek that happened 15 years before. Right. Like watching The Cage. Why are you here? To please you. Are you real? As real as you wish? Oh, no. No, that's not any answer. I've never met you before. I never even imagined you. Perhaps they made me out of dreams you've forgotten. But and dressed you in the same metal fabric they wear? Well, I have to wear something. Don't I? Or I can wear whatever you wish. Or be anything you wish. So they can see how this specimen performs? They want to see how I react, is that it? Don't you have a, a dream, something you've always wanted very badly? Or do they do more than just watch me? Do they feel with me too? You can have 
whatever dream you want. I can become anything, any woman you, you've ever imagined. You can have anything you want in the whole universe. It's like watching that, right, that expedition that originally came, that, that crash landed on the Telosian planet, right. Rabina. Oh, and, um, you mean it, the Columbia? Yes, the Columbia. <laughs> I'm not a Trek trivia person. I'm a Trek expert. Uh, American continent students. So. That's correct. Yeah. <laughs> USS Columbia. Yeah. Um, but it's interesting because let's break it down a little. What does Forbidden Planet have that Star Trek, quote unquote, stall? Um, there's the um, uh, United Space uh, Fleet, which in the planet which became starfleet in the federation or at first the united space probe agency which right. was clearly influenced by and it's interesting because when gene ronberry started the show it wasn't starfleet and it wasn't the united federation of the planets it was the united earth space probe or united earth as it was referred right. Right. almost avoiding what forbidden planet did and then when gene coon minted starfleet and the united federation of planets it gets closer to forbidden planet as though he didn't know that right. they were being off forbidden planet um which it's interesting. Um, you have uh, a captain played by Leslie Nielsen's Captain J.J. Adams, uh, right. who um, certainly not as um, uh, dynamic, dynamic as, as Shatner, but very much in the uh, the Je Jeffrey Hole uh, Hunter Jeffrey Holder. I'd like to see that the young, <laughs> yeah, the Jeff in the Jeffrey Hunter. Pulling uh, <laughs> that uh, yeah, That's right. Uh, you know, and uh, and and then you know one of the things. That Ronberry does do to his credit is, you know, the ship is all men, you know, uh, and Forbidden Planet. He, on his, Ronberry's Enterprise, he had female crew members. I mean, I think part of that was also to create uh, romantic tension for Captain Kirk, but he was more forward thinking than, you know, 10 years later than when Forbidden Planet was made, where it was a bunch of guys. Uh, and then they see, um, uh, um, you know, Walter Pidgeon and Anne Francis, and they're going, Gaga over the sight of a woman. It's a little, you know, retrograde uh, in terms of that. And well, it was also, I mean, it was a movie. And and so, you know, the idea of guys on a ship, you know, whether it be Run Silent, Run Deep, or, you know, any kind of movie where it's guys on a ship or, uh, or Operation Petticoat or whatever, you know, that the dynamic of a bunch of guys and one girl, that's a, more of a movie thing than a TV series where you need to have some, recurring female characters. That's true. Operation Petticoat may not be the best example of this, however. Uh, probably not. Probably not. <laughs> but but uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And then, of course, you also have some genre icons. To a certain extent, Leslie Nielsen, but Warren Stevens, who would later be in By Any Other Name, uh, who's second in command. And then you have Richard Anderson right. of uh, Six Million Dollar Man and by Oscar Goldman. Yeah. Who uh, is the communications officer? I think. Or well, he's kind of knows the engineer, and yeah, that's he's, he's got it. That's the other thing that Ronberry takes too is that the, that the engineer, you know, that the 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 Klystron transmitter is wrecked, and uh, he's explaining how long it's going to, how impossible it is uh, to fix. And the captain says, "Okay, it's impossible. How long? How how long is it going to take you?" And you know, it's very much. Scotty miracle worker yeah. thing. If I if I skip breakfast, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know that, and that to me was also like you know this engineer guy who was yeah no I'll fix it it's fine 
Right. <laughs> it's uh, and it's I, impossible, but I'll fix it. That's Scotty. That's like, you know, such a... Um, I love the navigation device on the bridge, the astrogator. Yeah. Oh, it's such a cool... It's so cool. Uh, and, so that, cool. and if you watch Lost in Space in the first season, the astrogator is the exact same thing. Yeah. In the center, and they will sing, and it's like, yep. yeah. Uh, what's interesting is when they go to warp or hyperspace or whatever they call it, they go into these chambers, which are extremely similar to the transporter. Right. Um, you know, to the, to the transporter, but also when to the tubes in lost in space. Lost in space. Yeah. When the, they, the, all the, the crew goes in and they're covered in light. It's exact. It's exactly the same thing. But yes, it's very similar to the transporter. It looks exactly like the transfer getting on the pad and, yeah. If it's a combination about who ripped off Forbidden Planet more, Lost in Space or Star Trek, I want to weigh in on the Star Trek because, of course, we talked about the similarities in terms of a space fleet, a navy, uh, um, but also there's the entire story of the Krell, a planet, uh, a race, a species that became so powerful in the mind uh, that they destroyed themselves. Right, which right. Is are the Telosians. Telosians beat for. Um, and of course, uh, they are creating havoc with our people throughout the movie, uh, manifesting these deadly life forms in much the way that the Telosians were able to sort of manifest illusions that were extremely dangerous. Well, but also, I mean, Roddenberry stole it like more times. Return to Tomorrow is the same. Also, you know, Sargon mm -hmm. might have been a Krell for all we know. Right. Um, you know, it was, uh, you know, it was the same, you know, he, he stole it more than once. Um, we dared think of ourselves as gods. <laughs> and, but that's also the message of Forbidden Planet is, is exactly what Darren just said, yeah. which is this idea that men are not gods. Uh, that's why we need religion. That's why we need government. Uh, there's this great speech. There's a great speech Leslie Nielsen gives mm -hmm. while he's trying to convince Morbius that it, that it's all from his id and it's a great speech uh, and it's a great Star Trek kind of speech it, it's a little heavy on religion right but it's still very much like you know it's it's about this it's about civilization you know civilization has meaning uh, to protect people and it's very very much I, I don't know if that speech inspired Ronberry or not but all the things that I love about Star Trek, that this idea of this, this sort of utopian society that's going to exist, that we're going to fix, which during this current pandemic, I mean, could, couldn't, you couldn't fantasize about more, um, is, is in that speech that Leslie Nielsen gives uh, Morbius in, in Forbidden Planet. You know, it's interesting, but you touched on the theological. And obviously, religion was anathema to Roddenberry, you know, he grew up in a very religious household. And by the time he gets to Star Trek, he wants to have nothing to do with it. There's no religion in the future. You know, the, there's no God, there's none, you know, it's very much, he does not want religion to be a part of Star Trek, other than in Bread and Circuses where it's the son of God. But, uh, but then um, you look at Forbidden Planet and it's the exact opposite. I mean, it even starts very early on. They're looking at a planet, at the planet, Altair 7. Altair 7? Altair 4. Four, excuse me. Yeah. They're looking at this. Altair 7 was the sequel. So Altair 4, um, and he says, God makes such wonderful planets, doesn't he? Right. Or something like that. Right. I'm sure some beautiful worlds. Uh, yeah, right. sure. 
and it, you know, watching it now, boy, that totally took me out of the, the, the movie. Uh, um, but it's interesting because that's one thing that Ron Berry completely eschewed. You know, he made the, 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 the you know, we're not going to deal with religion as the future. And, you know, partially because I think Roddenberry ultimately, you know, sort of held himself up as the god of Star Trek, the great bird of Star Trek. And there's only room for one, one god of Star Trek. One jealous god. <laughs> well, this makes a god. Go ahead. But I think that the... Um... But there were still these moments about like uh, wasn't um, doesn't Kirk say in who Mor who mourns for Adonais we find the one just sufficient and sufficient yeah. you know so it snuck back in as you say in Brendan circuses and maybe right. it was individual writers doing that and Ronberry not rewriting them or Gene Kuhn not rewriting them but it, it, it was or Gene Kuhn putting it back in because right, it, it sneaks back in religion sneaks back in. Because, of course, you know, when you get to Next Generation, it's the same thing. It's one of, you know, his thou shalt nots. You know, the, the religion is a thing of the past, just like money is a thing of the past, and conflict is a thing of the past. Right. Um, but, uh, but yeah, and, and, and even down, and Darren, I wonder if you can speak to this, you know, down to the matte paintings of Forbidden Planet, which are some of the most, and you showed in the Cinefantastic, some of the most beautiful sci-fi matte work. And I feel as though a lot of that, the planet here for also very much influenced Star Trek. I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that um, it was all, you know, it was all shot on a soundstage. And I think that that was, uh, you know, that sort of look is, uh, is what you get when you shoot something indoors to represent, you know, the outside. And I think a lot of inspiration was taken from that, that they, yes, they could go to a different planet every week. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, beautiful. I mean that you know that uh, that uh, model work and the combination of matte paintings and foreground miniatures and all that sort of stuff, um, really you know gives a guide to the future uh, you know production people of how to do this stuff uh, you know relatively quickly and uh, within their budget that you can do it inside and you can light it to look alien uh, and uh, and still make it believable. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. And it, it, it's funny because there's also a little of that Roddenberry lasciviousness as well when Anne Francis is swimming. Right. What's a bathing suit? What's a bathing suit? <laughs> oh, murder. It's weird. It's weird. Oh, murder. I don't know what that meant, but I... It's, I... it's, it's like, um, it's like the two different worlds of, you know, certainly life in the United States. It's the it's the it's the forties and the fifties sort of clashing right there in the movie itself. It's <laughs> it's it's these different lifestyles they're sort of butting up against each other and they don't know how to react to it. I think if you watch Forbidden Planet now, you have to realize this is the most significant sci-fi film to come on the heels of the serials. After right. Rogers and Flash Gordon. Is there really a movie before that that is sort of deals with I mean, there's stuff like Conquest of Space and all that, but this is the most. That was much later, though. Yeah. Big, okay, so big budget sci-fi movie since the serials, which were you know so goofy, right? And and, and you know to take sort of space exploration sort of seriously. I mean, it starts with that narration about you know in the 21st century, man colonized Mars and da da da. In rocket ships. In, ro in rocket ships, yeah. But I mean, regardless of all the stuff they got wrong, 
there's so much they get right in terms of um, the exploration of the galaxy and, and this crew and, you know, colonies. And they're, they're basically like many episodes of Star Trek on a rescue mission. We lost contact with this expedition, the Bella, 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 Bellerophon. Bellerophon. Uh, we lost contact. <laughs> so um, they've lost contact with the Bellerophon and um, they're going to check and see what happened. That's right. the fodder of I don't know how many Star Trek episodes. Right. Well, I think that's the other thing too that I think I lo- still love about the movie and, and why I connected so completely to Star Trek is, is that science fiction literature, uh, you know, Asimov and Clark and Heinlein and all of the rest in the 40s and 50s were so far ahead of, of what movies were and what sci-fi movies were. And that Forbidden Planet, like Star Trek, is tapping in. It's like it's it's tapping the keg of all that science fiction um, world building that Asimov did and that Heinlein did. You know, that that the Foundation Trilogy and, you know, all of Heinlein's stuff is, you know, the idea of, of united planets and, you know, and they it's sort of tapping it a little bit and making a movie that that is 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 tapping into all of that sort of literature history uh, sci-fi literature history and and saying to the audience um keep up uh we're not talking down to you yeah it's a bunch of planets and they're together you 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 know we know what it means you can sort of fill in the blanks yourself it's not important we're right. going to the planet the story on this planet and these characters is what's important but exists in this universe in this world that as a sci-fi fan you just love because you also want to sort of fill in the blanks a little bit and and think about what is the united planets what's it like serving on the spaceship all that stuff that sci-fi movies hadn't really done but writers had i think that's a that's a great point because mark as you mentioned before previous science fiction offerings the uh the serials and whatnot were more or less based on pulp and comic uh comic renditions of fantasy and sci-fi um and it was uh, it, it wasn't until forbidden planet that uh literature uh formats came in as you as you said david um so it was it was more going from a uh a children driven uh genre to you know getting more into the uh, adult take on it which may also be why it didn't do great at the box office right people associated this stuff with the fodder of um you know, cliffhanger and, and children's entertainment and not adults, you know, um, because science fiction s- certainly hadn't broken out yet as great. Lit- it wasn't considered great literature right. as it would eventually become, um, despite, you know, the early works of, of some of the great sci-fi authors. So um, it's very it's very interesting. I think what Roddenberry did, too, was, you know, obviously Forbidden Planet was a huge influence, but he was smart enough to then involve Harvey Lynn from Rand Group to say, you know, tell me what the future is going to be like, you know, and that's where he gets the idea for the giant computer brain and the turbo lift and diagnostic beds, which, which helps, I think, add to forbid the stuff in Forbidden Planet that isn't as well thought out, uh, that makes Star Trek feel so realistic and endure. Because of course, Roddenberry and Justman looked at um, a bunch of movies before they made Star Trek, Forbidden Planet being one of them, Day the Earth is Still. Uh, a big influence was Robinson Crusoe on Mars. Sure. I love that movie. Um, which was something else they looked at. And they did the same thing before Next Generation. But you don't see the influence of Forbidden Planet and Next Gen the way you do in the original. 
And of course, that was when they looked at some of the similar movies. Day of the Earth Stood Still. They looked at Star Trek Four, which is uh, uh, The Voyage Home, uh, which a lot of them hadn't seen yet uh, before they started working on Next Gen. They, and very you know, famously, uh, Ice Pirates, which was no help. Right. <laughs> I, you know, I, bigger, a big influence on that. I think that I would want to say that I think being fair to the audience of 1956, um, I think one of the reasons I've seen Forbidden Planet in the theater, but I've watched it mostly on television. It works as a TV show. On screen, it's pretty static. Mm, uh, the right. camera doesn't move very much. It's not a very dynamic film. It's a very, the pacing, the first half is really slow. Um, and so I think that that that's a piece of it too, that there's a way in which television saved forbidden planet in a number of ways, mm-hmm. because you watch on television, it's like, mm-hmm. Oh, that's a Star Trek. And you can, and a movie and a sh- the fact the camera's not moving as long as you've got sort of big talking heads, uh, that's enough on a television screen. Um, but in a theater, when I've seen forbidden planet in a theater, it's felt, uh, a little, a little static. Mm-hmm. I think that that's a that's a good point. Um, going back to uh, what Mark was talking about uh, about certainly the direct influences on Star Trek, is that I think one of the elements that Roddenberry Roddenberry brought in is the the element of the morality story told in westerns, right. and that's kind of missing from Forbidden Planet. I mean, there's a little bit of it, but they're mostly they're mostly space policemen in Forbidden Planet. It's there's there's not uh, any of that feeling of the uh, I don't know the adventure of you know going to this planet. It's it's kind of like day to day work, right. and it's not there's no exploration going on. We don't really feel any wonder when we go into the Krell underworld. It's kind of just oh well here this is interesting and uh, you know I don't know what's going on here. Let's just go back up uh, to the surface. Well, to add to what you say, Darren, which is very interesting is it almost has that kind of Frankenstein sense of morality. I have become God, right? You know, right. and are penalized for that. More right. penalized for thinking he could, you know, be a God, right? Right. Whereas Star Trek, yes, it did have those stories where, you know, people wanted to be gods and they were penalized, but more so was about morality stories we could relate to, you know, stories right. in everyday, about ethics, about leading an ethical life. Obviously, right. Roger. If you're going to be God, at least be a decent God. Don't be Roger Corby. You know, right. be, you know, in Dagger of the Mind, you know, when you create the Tantalus field. It's like, um, it's, it's, so it's, it's very, he makes it much more applicable to real life. Because not many people, you know, have ascended to become gods, right? Um, whereas, you know, Gary Mitchell does in this, in where, again, to where no man has gone before, which right. is, back to what David was saying. But by the time you get to the series, it's much more about living an ethical and moral life. And Interesting. I mean, I think that that it goes back to what you were saying about religion, too, that that, that there's a way in which that it's a uh, caution. It's supposed to be this sort of cautionary tale of like, don't forget to believe in God. And that sort of, I think... <laughs> probably undermines the movie in some way too because this is a science fiction movie as darren says they're off they're not exploring they're just going planet to planet this is what we do and we can be on an alien world but don't don't forget god don't forget (laughs) him believe in him he'll fuck with you if you don't you know and that that's not star trek that that's a way in which it's completely different from star trek the morality tale that it's telling you is 
be religious. <laughs> yeah. But it's interesting. I think the most, actually the most dynamic character in the film is Dr. Ostro. Because he really takes the steps to, you know, right. find out more and, and get more information and take the brain boost and see what the right. hell's going on. And he's the hero of the, sh of the show, actually. Because, right. uh, you know, he's, he's the, he he's the, the scientist. He's going to get in there. He's going to. Yeah. But the other, I mean, I think the other, I thought you were going to say that, that Robbie was the. That, uh, because Robbie's Robbie, an interesting Robbie, character. Robbie is an interesting character. He's he's funny. He's kind of like, you know, there's like a, not a sarcasm, but there's like a, uh, but it's interesting. But I agree with you about Ostro. He's, he's driving this, he's driving a piece of this train right. in a way. And he's got a tragic end. Yeah, Spoiler alert, if you have but it's, if you it's interesting that Robbie is in there to bring the kids in there because story-wise, there's no need to have him there other than the fact that this is a, you know, right. physical manifestation of the knowledge of the Krell that we right. can understand. But there's no need to have him in there other than put him on the poster. No, and, and you're right, and, and that it's not, it's a, it is, it's, it's a complete device, and it doesn't, if you watch the movie that now we're really pulling it apart, but it really doesn't make any sense. It's like, you know, <laughs> they, they see this thing. JJ uh, Adams says, this thing represents uh, technology beyond anything we have. Right. That's not their reaction to him when they meet him. Right. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> right. Interesting that of course, the one thing that became, you know, a, a superstar out of that movie was Robbie because of course Robbie the robot then was in other movies playing other characters. He was in the Invisible Ray or was the Invisible Boy? Invisible Ray or Invisible, Invisible Boy. Boy? I don't remember. Get the Pentagon. Class A emergency. The Joint Chiefs of Staffs are expecting the call. The rocket has just been entered by a robot. It lives. Life. Consciousness. A machine. It intends to put itself section by section into orbit around the Earth. And from that day forever forward, Earth will be its slave. People loved, and, I, and he was in Lost in Space, and people love Robbie. And, uh, and, and, but you're, and I wonder, in a way, if Robbie was an influence on Roddenberry as well, in terms of, um, you know, Quester, in terms of... Uh, you know, data, um, just the fact that people love robots. They love their robots. They're sure. cute. Well, I was also, I mean, it, Robbie went into some warehouse and whenever the Twilight Zone needed a robot, he's on like a couple of Twilight Zones as are the Forbidden Planet sets. And, and, Absolutely. Uh, and then uh, he's on a Columbo episode. Yeah. Um, you know, you, you know, but so the, the way in which people went nuts for Robbie, partially out of the fact that Oh, there's a built robot we can rent. Exactly, so a lot of screen time. Exactly, <laughs> for that reason. Uh, but I, I think that you know, again, you do. If you go back to Robbie, there is a way in which he does sort of feel a little bit like Data. He does feel like Quester. There's a naivete, but also sort of a, a humorousness. And the robot from the Lost in Space is so, like, again completely stolen from him uh, but sure um, but I, I think in lost in space developed to a much better character i mean the, the i think one of the roles that robbie does about that there. agreed <laughs> but 
but in the in the movie, Robbie is sort of there as a uh, a representation of the possible threat that this this uh, he has immense power, and you don't know whose side he's on. You don't know what's going on. He's he's you know uh, part of the MacGuffin, part of the secret, and we don't really know how he fits in everything. Right. Uh, and and so until everything is revealed later, and it's actually Robbie that is the clue to it because Robbie doesn't do anything to stop the id because it's Morbius, right. basically. So uh, it's it's really interesting how that character works and it's a shame that he isn't developed a little more in terms of how he deals with human beings, which is a lot of fun, which is why I like the Lost in Space robot because he is, I mean, he's, he's a cartoon character, obviously, but He's uh, he's equally as uh, visually interesting, and uh, I, I I love the Lost in Space robot. So there. I cannot accept that course of action. I cannot accept that course of action. My computer is the best on earth. Does not compute. Does not compute. Major Will Robinson. Major. Danger, Will Robinson. Danger. Yep. I just knew that I, there was no, that, 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 that character. That character went off. Uh, that character went off the rails a little. But anyway, you know, there's another bit of there's another bit of sci-fi connectivity to the Forbidden Planet, which is the uh, the bosun is played by uh, I forgot the actor's name, but he was one of the guys who was played uh, in in one of the Rocket Men serials. Mm. I don't remember which one. Oh, um, he, uh, but he he's he, he's in one of he's one of the guys who puts on the Rocketman. Right. Out, whether it was uh, um, Zombies of the Stratosphere or right. King of the Rocketman, one of the is, is the, he is he the one that uh, uh, the captain is yelling? I'll have less dreaming aboard this ship. No, he's the one. He he has a very kind of like um, he's the one. He he's the one who. He's old. He's like his captain's secretary. You know, go get my car. You know, we need the tractor. And he, right. he's the one he leaves in command. Command at the end, saying, "Okay, right here if you know." Um, Roddenberry saw a zombie in the stratosphere and said, "Well, if I can't get that guy, let me have the, the one. He'd be great for my guy." Um, let me put the ears on that guy. <laughs> <laughs> one of the other things I think Roddenberry was really smart. You know, uh, because he even had people like Oscar Katz when they were on the. The RKO Paramount lot, you know, looking at the water tower and saying, hey, that could be like your ship. You could do something like that. And people were saying, you know, do, you know, rocket ship. They expect the Enterprise to be a rocket ship or a flying saucer, which was common of the era. Right. And, and it was, you know, him who basically said, no, we're going to bring in Matt Jeffries and we're going to design a ship that looks like nothing we've ever seen before. We're going to have a saucer and rocket ships all put together. I'll show you. <laughs> Yeah. Is, that drunk, is that a drunken Roddenberry pitching? Is that what that is? There's very little difference. <laughs> I'm not saying anything, so, but... Uh, but yeah, so I think that, you know, that was in a very another astute decision uh, by by Roddenberry because, of course, it became this sort of, you know, this great icon of science fiction of popular culture in general. Right. Um, now, the other thing about Forbidden Planet that's really interesting is it does feel like it could be, it's one adventure, but these guys are going off in the ship to other adventures, right? right. And they've come from, they've had a bunch of adventures right. uh, up until now. So 
you know, what, what do you think? Obviously there was never forbidden planet two. There was, um, there was a Broadway, not an off Broadway play, I believe that adapted it, but it was more like a, it was a campy kind of, it was a musical. It was a musical. I saw, I saw it. It was a, it was terrible. Uh, but it was, (laughs) but it was, it wasn't terrible, but it was like, it's what's the point of this. But I also know, uh, actually when I worked on enterprise, uh, a studio came to Brannon, Braga, uh, and I desperately tried to convince them to do it. Uh, they were they were trying to remake it, and I think J. Michael Straczynski did a Forbidden Planet uh, uh, reboot, essentially of a, a movie script, but that never got made. There's been development several times. I, I worked on one of them. A, a director that I worked for uh, was developing a film, and then a series, yeah. and then. It's it's uh, it's been sort of a constant for the last twenty five years. Yeah, everyone's trying to do it because no one knows how. But the funny right. thing is, is that you know here, uh, you know it was made by MGM, but as part of the whole Turner thing, ended up as part of the Warner Library. So Warner right. Brothers has they have their own Star Trek sitting there, Forbidden Planet. It's the same show, and you right. accuse it of ripping off Star Trek because Star Trek ripped off Forbidden Planet. So basically you can do Star Trek with Forbidden right. Planet the way, and, and it's amazing to me that no one has done it yet. Well, I mean, you know, it took they a don't while know what they've got there. Star Trek, I mean, was, you know, even the people who own Star Trek took a while to get back to doing Star Trek. I mean, it's not. Uh, That's my point. You know, you, <laughs> there's, uh, with, you've got the recipe for Coca-Cola and then you don't want to make any. <laughs> you know, it's is that a line from somewhere, Darren? It's that's, funny line. That's from uh, uh, the head of Paramount uh, talking to Francis Coppola to convince him to do Godfather Two. Wow! Oh, I never heard that. That's, that's a great story. Charlie Bluthorn. Yeah, but it, it's extraordinary because, of course, in this age of IP fever, that no one has touched Forbidden Planet either right. film or TV um, in all this time. You know, uh, well, part of the other problem that you have when something's been in development for a long time that it becomes that much harder to make because everything gets charged off, right? Uh, you know, and stacked up rights over the time periods, yeah. Right. So it ends up becoming like the, the the pressure on it. I mean, this is this is obviously not uh, it's comparable in a smaller way, but I, I rewrote a a screen move a, a feature movie based on Hong Kong Fui. And it had been in development so long that one of the issues with it was they had spent so much money on development that then to go in production, it, it almost wasn't it almost wasn't worthwhile, uh, you know. And, and it's still in development. I mean, it, they eventually fired me and hired somebody else. But but I was on that show, I was on that movie for like two years. And, yeah, it doesn't uh, work. Man, Crothers, it doesn't work. It's just not. It's not the same. Yeah, we had Eddie Murphy sign when I was. There. Wow, <laughs> that would have been pretty good. <laughs> Funny to see that. Um, yeah, no, it was, live, it was live action. It would have been a live action. Oh. Bring it. <laughs> You know, it's funny because that's a point Aaron likes to make um, about Star Trek, the motion picture. People always talk about how over budget, how expensive it was, but what they don't realize is, you know, it had to. It was carrying ten years of development on other projects. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny also talking about, I was looking through this uh, Cinefantastique, mm-hmm. and in the back is... There it is. It's coming. It's coming. Start to the motion picture. It's That's coming. so funny. Um, is any of it? Any, any, 
anything in, in there that's correct though about it? Does it? What do they predict? Um, you know, it's funny. I I don't. Um, I didn't read. I I read it a while ago, so I don't. But you know, they've got. I mean, okay. this is this is pretty far on. I mean, they've got they got. This is pretty close to a yeah. game. Yeah. So this is just uh, fantastic Star Trek: The Motion Picture preview. I end yeah. the planet issue. Whatever happened, Mark? Were you going to get all Center Fantastic digital? What happened? Yeah, well, um, you know, I helped put together that deal, and the guy who owns the rights, uh, um, he has them, and he's supposed to be putting them on a digital app. And I, I don't know what the status is. I haven't, I haven't talked to him in a while about that. I'm not sure, but I know they, they had grand plans for bringing back Cine Fantastic. Um, but I, I, such a great, such a great thing, and I always find, as a fan of, of anything, when you're, you know. You can't. The internet. It's like. It's sort of like. It's a library with all the books on the floor. Um, you go, you search, and maybe if you're lucky, you find what you're looking for. But you never, you never find the completeness of it. That's in a fantastic did the deep dive. Yeah, uh, fantastic was the best, the absolute best. And uh, I, I mean, when I sold it, I gave the entire library to the Margaret Herrick Library at the Academy. So, you know, they have all, you know, Fred's many years of archives and remarkable, remarkable stuff. Uh, you know, we all owe a debt to Fred Clark, who was covering the stuff and nobody else would. You know, they Forbidden Planet. Look at that. I mean, Rebello's Psycho article, um, which end, he ended up turning into a book, but that wouldn't have existed without that Cinefantastic story. I mean, the, uh, the Batman issue, the Batman TV series issue mm -hmm. was unbelievable so um, great. yeah you could say it was zowie you could you could there one you, could yes so, <laughs> so well yeah what do you say to sort of wrap up um you know what's the future if there is any a forbidden planet and uh you know to somebody who maybe is younger than us who's like why do i even want to watch that old from the that old movie from the 50s you know what it doesn't speak to me what would you say um go to hell <laughs> um, no you know it, to me it's like uh, you discover you discover you discover things and you you can i remember showing my son a flash gordon serial when he was like eight or nine and he was angry at me. He's like, what the fuck is this? He didn't say fuck. But what the hell is this? I don't even understand what this is. It's so bad. And, uh. you know, you connect, you, you connect to things in a personal way. I think if you're a, if you're a sci-fi movie, um, you know, geek, uh, you know, you have to, and you haven't seen Forbidden Planet, you have to see it. Um, uh, and and I say the sci-fi fans and Star Trek fans, you may find things in there that that you connect to in Star Trek. Right. Even even fans of new Star Trek may find things in there uh, because I, it's not. I don't think there's any real connection uh, to the people who are doing new Star Trek to Forbidden Planet. But but again, I you know I I don't know why I love the, I, I movies now on my phone. I watch it all the time. I turn it on, and the, I just love it. And you know, but why, why do people connect to things? I mean, I, why are people listening to this podcast? I don't know. Uh, I would assume by now somebody's turned me off. Like I can't stand listening to this guy. He sounds like Ray Romano. Um, but, uh, <laughs> I um, think You know, it's, it, I think from a technical point of view, if you're interested in filmmaking, watching this movie and seeing how the effects hold up, how the, how the, um, 
the production design, all this stuff. And there's some very good acting. Walter Pigeon's terrific in this movie. Mm -hmm. He's a great, great villain. Like we say this, as people who work in this business, we all stand on the shoulders of giants. That we build, building on their work, you know, much like Daystrom. And uh, if it wasn't for these people who were there first, who were doing it first, who, who made the tough decisions, we wouldn't be doing what we're doing, you know? I mean, and, and, you know, you can trace a direct path from Forbidden Planet to Orville. Maybe not. You're good, absolutely. Yeah. You know, Pandora is dramatically influenced by everything starting with Forbidden Planet on. And, you know, Darren obviously is clearly hugely influenced by the work of those early masters in the show. Me personally, I I want to be Walter Pigeon. But I. Pigeon, Darren? No, I don't. I don't. I I, I have no pigeon in my repertoire. Maybe Um, you should have prepared for this podcast. Perhaps I should have. And if I cared more, I probably would have. But um, I, I I think that one. One thing I would I would suggest to uh, people who are doing Star Trek these days or any sort of kind of science fiction is to not go to the you know the more recent stuff or even the uh, you know original series for inspiration. Go to the things that inspired them. Go to the go to the source and get your own take on this path. Right. Because you know the source of like you know the uh, the Forrester novels, you know the the uh, yeah. the uh, Forbidden Planet itself, uh, uh, old time westerns, all those things that were the, the the building blocks of that DNA. Go from the source as pure as you can, and yeah. then see where it takes you. Yeah, yeah, that's great advice. I, I've been interesting. Interestingly, I've been reading rereading the old. Uh, James Bond novels. Sure. And the James Bond, obviously the James Bond movies are a thing that are, you know, but if you go back to those novels, there's right. something that's going on there. This character study and this, and this slice of life of yes. this in the sixties, that is very inspiring. Like nobody's really done that. Nobody's, that's true. Uh, you know, no, nobody's done, you know, with maybe the exception of the first two Bond movies, Dr. No and Fresh with Love, which are mm-hmm. pretty close. Uh, they've never really captured the flavor of those books. And, right. who they, and, and, it's, and it's interesting. I don't know if I'm going to do anything with it. It's just, it is very inspiring. Honor Majesty's Secret Service uh, also is fairly faithful. The yeah. majority of the books are not faithful. And I'd love to see them, and I've said this to Fred Decker and I talked about this, I'd love to see them adapted faithfully, like a never yeah. as period, you know, right. and they exist it could exist side by side with the movie franchise. I, I agree. I think that that would be really interesting. Moon. I just reread Moonraker, which obviously has no connection right. except for the title. Right. And it's it's a great book. I mean, the first sixty pages is a bridge game. Right. Right. In bridge. I, I mean, Drax. <laughs> the name Hugo Drax is is also Hugo Drax. Right. Yeah, but uh, but yeah. No. Look, that's a whole nother conversation. Right. Um, you know about uh, about James Bond, but uh, we're all out of time uh, for this. But this is—I'm so glad you suggested this. So great to go back to the beginning for all intents and purposes to yeah. Forbidden Planet, because really it's the Flash Gordons, the you know the Tom Corbett's, all that stuff. You know the pulps. You know they're important uh, in terms of laying the groundwork, the foundation, but they're not significant in terms of what became Star the lineage. The lineage. Right. 
And it really starts with Forbidden Planet. So uh, what a great idea to go back and look at this. And for those of you who haven't seen it, go on iTunes, go on wherever you, you know, download it, buy, buy it. Warner Brothers did a great uh, Blu-ray of it a bunch of years ago. Highly recommend it. And check it out. And uh, read The Tempest while you're at it. <laughs> we didn't even talk about it. <laughs> it's interesting if you, on, the, on that Blu-ray, I think, or uh, actually, I feel like maybe I saw, when I owned the Laserdisc, which was this giant, mm-hmm. maybe a Criterion Laserdisc. Yeah. Yep. Uh, you actually, they had the original treatment. You could scroll through it on the screen and you see how they just took Shakespeare's, the, the, the guys who wrote the treatment right. just took the Tempest and adapted it. Yeah. The shows when you're doing genre, the best influence sometimes isn't genre. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Look, Shakespeare informs this movie so dramatically, and that's uh, really the case with uh, so many great, uh, uh, so much great uh, sci-fi. So, yeah. Well, David, thank you so much. It's great to see you, even if it's virtual. And uh, Darren as well. And uh, you can join us every Saturday for Inglorious Trexperts. And if you want to watch us, you can now download the Electric Now app at your favorite app store. At we, your peril. Uh, episodes of Inglorious Trek. Uh, as well as the 430 movie, Best Movies Never Made, The Rebel and the Rogue, and uh, uh, great shows from the Electric Library, Leverage, and the Librarians. So uh, we want to thank our producers, Natalie Miscali, and uh, production coordinator, Zach Raggetts, and um, as well as production advisor, uh, Peter Hol- research advisor, Peter Holstrom. And uh, until next week, I say to you, stay healthy, stay safe, and uh, keep on trekking, ingloriously, of course. Age. This show was produced by Dean Devlin and Mark A. Altman and is an Electric Surge Network production.